Hi, I'm Tedra Meyer, Vermont Edition producer, and I wanted to let you know that the podcast you're about to listen to has been edited for clarity and brevity. Thanks for listening and enjoy. This is Vermont Edition. I'm Michaela Lefrac. Now, it's no news that Vermont has a severe housing shortage. Permitting and zoning requirements are often seen as two of the main drivers, not just in the state, but nationwide. This legislative session, lawmakers are working on ways to revise Act 250, Vermont's land use law. The goal is to get cities and towns to allow for denser housing, particularly in downtown areas. Now, proponents argue that these changes will not only make housing more available, but also more affordable and accessible to all Vermonters. Later in the show, we'll be joined by housing policy expert Leah Rothstein and Brian Shoup, the head of the Vermont Natural Resources Council, to provide equity and environmental perspectives perspectives on these proposed changes. But first, we have with us State Senator Keisha Rahm Hinsdale. She's a Democrat progressive representing Chittenden Southeast and the chair of the Senate's Economic Development, Housing and General Affairs Committee. Senator Rahm Hinsdale, welcome back to Vermont Edition. Thanks so much for having me. It's a privilege to be here. Senator, any housing legislation is, you know, kind of by necessity, pretty complicated and multifaceted and, and can kind of be hard for the public to grasp. So first, before we dive into the brass tacks of this bill, I'd love to start by hearing what your vision is for it. Like 20 years from now, if this bill passes, what would you hope Vermont's housing landscape looks like? Mm, that's a great question. And I think we often talk about it as housing, affordable housing, um, housing Vermonters. But I think it's really valuable to start with the concept that everybody deserves a place to call home. Um, you know, when I was growing up, my family's home was foreclosed. My father lived in motels for much of my adolescence. My mother was a single mom trying to raise three kids and choosing between rent and groceries. That has a huge impact on the well-being of our families and our children. And everyone just wants a quiet, dignified place for their kids to do homework at the kitchen table, to be able to care for an aging family member, to age in place themselves. And right now, Vermont just doesn't have the types of housing that allow for every Vermonter to live in different stages of their life with dignity and uh, with the tools that they need to, to enjoy that quality of life. Now, proponents of this omnibus bill that you're working on say that this isn't just about growth for growth's sake. Uh, we found that analysts at the Vermont House Finance Agency estimate that Vermont needs to add up to 45,000 new housing units by 2030 to meet demand. Could you talk us through that number? Where does this data come from? Yeah. I mean, first of all, if people don't know, I'm going to nerd out for a second and Please. say there's a website called housingdata.org that Vermont Housing Finance Agency actually runs. It's all Vermont data. And it's town by town. It shows you how much uh, you know current data you might have around how many people both live and work in town or have to commute, how much housing stock is available in your community and has been since the 1970s. So Vermont Housing Finance Agency is our best source of good data, which is hard to come by. 
Um, about half of that figure of forty to 45,000 homes is from the need currently to bring blighted properties back online, to house people in the types of housing stock that they uh, want to be able to live in from you know families to those who are uh, in their end home. Um, but the other half of that number is just if we look at the pandemic patterns that we've seen, what's going to happen with climate change, and what Vermont might need to do so that change doesn't happen to us when climate disasters get worse. Also, when political climates change in other states. I mean, when families recognize that they might be persecuted for supporting their trans child or for having a certain political belief, they're going to look at places like Vermont that are both safe from a climate perspective and from a political perspective for some folks in this country. And we either have to be ready for that or accept climate refugees without having the housing stock available. Hmm. So how does this bill achieve that? Um, I, I know that it would require mun- municipalities to allow for denser housing in certain areas, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, when you look at this housing crisis, there's a urban, suburban, and rural component, uh, all three. And so everywhere in the state, it would allow duplexing by right. We've seen numerous articles that say for many seniors especially, the idea of taking a large home that they have, maybe they're only heating one part of it, they're really struggling to, to stay in that home. You know, finding a way to partition it and cut it in half alone would be a really huge change for the state, not having to go through a bunch of regulations. In fact, Vermonters may not know this, but about 70 percent of Vermont households are two people or less. And when we think about our big farmhouses, that's a lot to heat and a lot to maintain. So anywhere in the state, you could duplex by right. If you're on municipal water and sewer or more suburban areas, you could quadruplex by right or have up to four units per acre. And this is all permissive. It's promoting multifamily housing, but it's not requiring multifamily housing. It's allowing people to have flexibility with the property that they own. And then finally, the Act 250 pieces are far more concentrated in our designated growth areas. That's our most urban core in Vermont, if you can if you can characterize it that way. <laughs> but, you know, our our downtowns, our village centers, places that we want to see growth should have more affordable housing uh, and more housing in general without reaching that Act 250 threshold and then having to go through both local and state permitting processes. Hmm. Now, um, listeners, we on Vermont Edition recently did a show about how um, one town, Morrisville, is addressing the the housing crunch. Um, if you want to take a listen to that, it's in our Vermont Edition archives. And I also see that we're getting a number of calls about um, the ways that this bill um, impacts Vermont's natural environment. I will say that we're going to get to that in depth a little bit later in the show. But first, Senator Ram Hinsdale, as you have worked to um, to create and shepherd this bill in the Senate, you have talked extensively about um, one formative book that's really guided your thought process on this called The Color of Law. Can you talk to us a little bit about that book? Absolutely. I'm so honored we're going to be joined by Leah Rothstein, the author's daughter. I'm sure she contributed to the book, and it sat on our shelf the entire time that we were uh, debating this piece of legislation that came out unanimously from our Senate Housing Committee. And I actually handed my copy over to the Senate Natural Resources Committee um, because we have to take a dispassionate look at how both environmental arguments and quality of life arguments, aesthetic arguments, have been weaponized against people of color and people considered undesirable to live next to. It's no 
it shouldn't be seen as uh, totally separate issues that around the time of the civil rights movement, which is also around the time that we started creating our land use planning laws, we had a situation where um, you know people wanted single family homes and they wanted to determine sometimes with uh, you know blatant and sometimes latent or or in unintentional discrimination to block a lot of people of color and low-income people from being able to access that housing. So we have this deep generational preference somewhere for single-family homes, um, you know, your own parcel of land. And many people want multifamily housing. They want options. They want walkability. Uh, and so we have to look at ways that our housing policies all over the country have started to discriminate against multifamily housing. Vermont is not immune to this. We have the fifth largest racial homeownership gap in the country. And around the same time as Act 250 was implemented, we had urban renewal that raised numbers of immigrant communities. We had covenants that didn't allow black people or Jewish people to live in certain housing developments. We had real estate videos that said, we want families like you with a wink and a nod to white flight coming from other parts of the Northeast. So Vermont has to reckon with our role uh, in in some of this discrimination that looks a lot like what's talked about in The Color of Law. And I'd also like to add another voice into the conversation now. Leah Rothstein is a national expert in housing policy and a consultant on nonprofit housing issues nationwide. Her father, Richard Rothstein, wrote the book The Color of Law in 2017, which looks at how government policy directly created segregated neighborhoods in towns and cities across the country. Leah Rothstein is co-authoring, or she already has co-authored, a sequel with her father called Just Action. It comes out in June. Leah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. And listeners, you can join this conversation. What do you think lawmakers should do to increase the state's affordable housing stock? Give us a call at 800-639-2211 or email us at vermontedition at vermontpublic.org. Now, Leah Rothstein, to, to help us ground this conversation on equity in housing, I'm wondering if you could explain what you and your father describe as the, quote, myth of de facto segregation that we see playing out across the country. What is that myth? Yeah, sure. So it's a very common myth. It's this idea that we have a segregated society not because of government action, but because of private action, maybe because of realtors or banks or landlords who refuse to rent to African-Americans or sell homes or give mortgages to African-Americans in white neighborhoods. So it was private action that created segregation of our communities. Or we tell ourselves that it's a personal choice, that we just like to live around people who look like us or that it just happened naturally because of questions of economics that we tend to gravitate towards people you know of the same economic class as us and that tracks with race and so that's why we're racially segregated in our communities well as my dad laid out in the color of law and senator hinsdale before the break alluded to uh, the federal government the federal state local governments all um, contributed and required and incentivized these private actions to create the segregated um, society that we live in. So the idea that there, this is just something natural that happened sort of naturally and can only unhappen naturally is really a myth. 
um, I can give an example. So when um, after World War II, when our country became a more suburban society than it was before then, it happened because the federal government decided to subsidize and help finance the building of suburbs outside of central cities for returning war veterans and their families. But it made sure that those, those suburban homes were only available for whites. It was written into the deeds of the homes that they could only be sold to white families and white homeowners. So those homeowners, those white families bought homes when they were pretty affordable. They were about $100,000 in today's money. And those white families have owned those homes and built equity over generations that they can now pass on to their children and their grandchildren to help them buy homes. And that leads us to where we are today, which is the uh, the gap of wealth between African-American families and white families is is huge. It's a huge disparity. So African-American um, average household wealth is about 5% of white household wealth. And that can be traced back almost entirely to this government policy that allowed white families into home ownership and allowed them to build equity and build wealth over generations and prohibited African-Americans from doing so. So now we have that's yeah. Go ahead. That's where we are today. I, I was curious to hear from um, Senator Ram Hinsel here, like hearing everything that um, Leah Rothstein is describing. How how would this omnibus bill that um, that you've been working on these past few months? How would that that directly uh, affect some of these these longstanding and sometimes nationwide issues that <gasps> Leah Rothstein is describing? Absolutely, and it's so great to first have it crystallized so we can look for the right data. Um, but if, as as Leah was speaking, I was just thinking about a chart we saw that shows how big the rate of change has been in the uh, value of someone's home in Vermont over the course of the pandemic. Uh, I can't find a place in history where the rate of change was that great, and home values um, have never been higher. So if you own your home in Vermont, you've basically won the lottery. And if you don't own your home, you're paying extremely high rents and you're further away from home ownership than you've ever been. And that wealth gap has become huge as it probably has nationwide. In addition to the changes we're making that we hope will allow for lower cost home ownership, starter homes, duplexes. You know, in fact, if you ask Governor Phil Scott, his first home was a duplex, uh, you know, so it's been a way for people to get their foothold in the housing market. Um, but we also have first-generation homebuyer grants in the bill to really give a nod specifically to those who have no generational wealth to purchase that first home. And we have a funding for programs that we believe are working, um, missing middle home ownership, which helps people afford those workforce houses that are going to be available we often, again, look at affordable housing and getting people into income-eligible uh, subsidized housing. And the second they their income um, makes them ineligible, they don't have a lot of options. And the goal here is to create a lot of missing middle homeownership opportunities for the Vermonters that are right now iced out of the housing market. And that's a lot of people of color, immigrant families, and those just trying to enter the middle class. Now, Leah, in you and your father's upcoming book, Just Action, you describe how citizens can address existing residential segregation. And I love this because housing can seem, like I said at the top of the show, like such a huge, immovable, long-term issue. But you're saying it doesn't 
always have to be. Uh, what advice do you have for people living in a place like Vermont? Yeah, so our entire book is about what people can do locally to start to move the needle on these issues, um, to redress segregation, and both by looking forward to um, to not continue to perpetuate racial segregation in their neighborhoods and also to address the disparities we see from past government action. So a lot of the things that are in this bill address both of those prongs. Um, and what people can do locally is start to talk to each other about these issues, start to learn about how segregation happened in your community, and then start to organize and look at what is happening locally that you can work on, whether it's, um, you know, organizing, recruiting landlords to rent to Section 8 voucher holders and making that program easier on both landlords and tenants to move to um, higher opportunity neighborhoods or, um, you know, protecting renters from unjust evictions. So there's a lot that can be done on the local level that um, we don't need to wait for, you know, sort of the federal government and the federal policy to to catch up to what we want to see in our own communities. We have to start locally and it starts by talking to each other and getting organized and seeing what our own community needs around these issues. Now, uh, Senator Romhinsel, you you mentioned the um, the difficulty that many Vermonters, many new Vermonters have in getting a foothold um, in the housing market, first time home buyers, for example. And, and it reminded me of an email that we got from a listener named Keith, who writes, Burlington and surrounding towns are experiencing a housing crisis in no small way due to the need for housing for 4,700 full-time UVM undergraduate students that the university is often unable to house? How can the legislature assist our state university to house more of its students to then allow non-students to live in the city? You know, having been one of those students and uh, graduating to actually purchasing the home that I rented as a student, um, you know, I can say that first of all, we lose a lot of college students in Vermont more at a higher rate than many other states about, you know, I would say most college students want to stay here. We're one of the friendliest places um, to live and try and, and start your life, except in terms of housing. And I hear from young people all the time, I would love to stay and build my life here, but only about 58% of our college students are successful in doing that. Um, you know, I have certainly looked at, at this issue from all sides that's going on in Burlington around housing more students. I think it's a real push and pull. Um, I understand the council and others wanting UVM to sort of figure out how much growth is sustainable at the same time that UVM is asking for uh, permission to create more housing. I think they wanted to do between 300 and 400 units of housing um, to get students out of triples. And so you know, on town meeting day, I think this is a great local issue to focus on. And I'm just so appreciative that Leah's uh, book with her father is about what can happen at the local level, because at some level, the state doesn't want to get too involved in these local conversations. But I know I benefited from the opportunity to live and work in Burlington and graduate from student housing to owning my own home. And that access to capital just isn't there for most young people, but they desperately want to be part of the community. 
And listeners, if you have thoughts on what Senator Rom Hinsdale is saying about this new housing bill or the work of housing advocate and consultant Leah Rothstein, give us a call, 800-639-2211. We have a call now from Nalima in Colchester. Nalima, you're on the air. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Thanks so much. I just had a suggestion. I know that with housing issues, there's always a concern about raising taxes, whether it's through you know, classic gentrification or what happened during the pandemic. And it just seems so unfair that anyone should be taxed out of their own home. So I had an idea to share that maybe there'd be a cap on how much you get taxed every year until you sell your house. And then you could make up the difference because, you know, people don't really have that money until they sell their house. So I just wanted to share that suggestion. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for that suggestion, Nalima. And we'd love to hear other suggestions from listeners. 800-639-2211 is the number to call. Leah Rothstein, have you heard of any communities across the U.S. implementing an idea like Nalima's? Yeah, sure. There's a property tax cap, excuse me, that some communities use when property values are escalating rapidly and the increased property taxes is hard for the folks who own homes to, you know, keep up with the increase in property tax. And yeah, it's a great idea that you can pay that back when you sell the home. One issue in terms of equity around property taxes um, that we're seeing around the country is that African-American homebuyers pay a larger proportion, a larger um, rate, property tax rate compared to the value of their home. So than whites do. So a property tax cap wouldn't address that issue. And, but and it sorry, does sorry, why is that? Why do they pay a higher rate? Well, because how municipalities, they set a property tax rate based on the value of all of the homes in a community at a given point. And they set that rate to make sure that they can pay for all of the mun- municipalities costs. And then the value of homes change after they set that rate and white homes um, in white neighborhoods tend to increase in value faster than African-American homes in African-American neighborhoods. And so a white homeowner, their home will increase in value over time, but they're still paying the same property tax rate based on a lower value of their home. While an African-American home buyer, homeowner, they're paying a property tax rate based on sort of a larger proportion of the value of their home because their home isn't increasing in value as quickly. So a lot of communities, they haven't reassessed their property values for decades. And so some homeowners are paying a smaller proportion of their property value than others. And that tends to track by the racial makeup of the neighborhoods of where those homes are. Hmm. Now, Leah, later in this hour, we're going to to take a hard look at how um, development and changes to Vermont's Act 250 um, could affect um, the the state's um, rural landscape and its open spaces, which are, are valued by by so many. Um, and I'm wondering if you might be able to to give us some advice as we enter into that conversation, because I think oftentimes it can be seen as sort of like a, a one side and the other side conversation. And, you know, I think there's there's many shared values here from, you know, between people who want to see the state have more affordable housing um, and an equitable housing system and people who want to preserve the natural environment here. So so what is your advice as we, we dive into these topics? Well, um, I would say that we need more housing and that's just a fact. And, um, you know, if you look at folks who live in wonderful rural large houses, 
um, their children need a place to live. And so if we can focus building on where um, housing already exists and make it more dense, um, that you know, increases housing opportunity for everyone and still protects some rural landscape outside of the central cities. Um, but what we definitely need to focus on is just increasing the housing diversity that our cities and, and towns have so that as, as communities change, that there is an, a, you know, a, a plethora of options for folks coming into the community and who want to stay that they don't just um, have to be able to buy a large single family home in order to be able to live in that community. And I would say that, um, you know, there's always resistance to change in a community when that means changing sort of who lives there and what the housing options are. And we just sort of have to embrace change and embrace the fact that if we want our communities to thrive and we want the people in them to thrive, that we we need to increase um, we need to embrace some change, and it's not always a bad thing. Senator Romhinsel, I see you nodding. I'm just nodding video. along. <laughs> it's just an honor to share airtime with you, Leah, and you're really speaking to oh. you know the the shift mentally um, that we have to make. And you know, so often um, what Vermonters will say is, you know, maybe it's 50-50 in terms of who wants growth and more housing, but it's 100% of Vermonters want their kids to be and their grandkids to be able to live in the state. And so it's a lot of mentally shifting around who are those people that are going to live near you? They're growing families. They're seniors who need to downsize. You know, they're, they're nobody that's scary and they might look di- different than you and make different food. But, you know, that's that's part of the exciting a journey that we should be on as we look to diversity of housing. Well, Leah Rothstein is a national expert in housing policy, and her forthcoming book, Just Action, comes out in June. She co-authored it with her father, Richard Rothstein, who wrote the book, The Color of Law. Leah, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And I'd also like to add another voice into the conversation now. Brian Shoup is the executive director of the Vermont Natural Resources Council. It's a nonprofit environmental advocacy group headquartered in Montpelier. Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for inviting me on. Now, Brian, I know you have um, some, some good feelings about this bill, some uh, some concerns. So let's start with the positive here. What what parts of this omnibus bill that Senator Rom Hinsdale and her colleagues have been working on um, do you agree with? Well, I appreciate your starting that way because there is a lot of common ground. Um, we were involved in a stakeholder process over the summer and fall of last year that was convened by um, Representative Bongarts from Manchester to work with um, with planners and housing advocates, housing providers, um, and others, uh, municipal officials, to talk about how exclusionary practices in zoning, those practices that, that limit economic diversity and, and, by extension, racial diversity, can be corrected in this state. And we agreed to a number of provisions. And I believe that bill was the starting point for um, this omnibus bill that we're talking about today. Some of the things that we agreed with was that those communities that have water and sewer systems should be allowing a minimum number of housing units. I believe the, the bill that passed out of the um, Senator Ron Hinsdale's committee um, requires that they allow four units per acre where they have water and sewer. And there are some provisions to safeguard against you know impacting wetlands or other fragile features, but 
But that's really important to say, let's use the infrastructure that we have to allow um, to allow adequate um, housing density to promote compact development. We also support the uh, allowing duplexes everywhere. Um, that's a real a real quick and easy way to kind of double the amount of housing with the same amount of infrastructure as a single-family home. And we also supported the, the concept of where you have water and sewer to allow fourplexes. Um, and as, as the senator said, those aren't mandates. It's just saying that the community needs to allow that for the, for the property owner to either build or, or divide up their existing um, property. We also support um, a provision... Uh, a concept that is included in this, in this bill, and that's to say there are certain parts of the state um, that have been designated by the state where Act 250 may not be adding value, and let's just leave it up to the municipal officials to permit housing in those areas. Um, the state has five of these designation programs. Um, the first was the downtown development districts, um, and then came village centers, which is a, a, a much easier program to be designated, uh, growth centers came along, new town centers, and then most recently neighborhood development areas. And um, currently the number of housing units that triggers Act 250 in most of those areas, in growth centers and downtowns, new town centers, and neighborhood development areas, um, is much higher than the number that would trigger Act 250 outside of those areas. Mm -hmm. And we, we have supported that. And we were very involved. The neighborhood development areas was created, I, oh, I think, about only about five or six years ago, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, it was during the Shumlin administration, and we were very involved in that. And then last year, we were involved in, in um, helping to shape legislation that expanded that neighborhood development area program. It made it easier for small villages to be designated and eliminated some of the um, environmental restrictions that, that didn't make sense um, in those areas. I can talk about that later if you'd like. So we, we supported that. Those changes to the law just took effect and um, should, be, should be given a chance to, to, to um, be used. And it's, it's noteworthy that since the Neighborhood Development Area Program was created, 2,700 what are called priority housing projects, those are the projects that are exempted from Act 250, have been permitted and developed. So, so those are all areas that we're in, ag in agreement with, um, with uh, uh, this piece of legislation on. Well, thank you, Brian. And I think your answer demonstrates, uh, Senator Rumpensdale, how, how um, multifaceted this, this omnibus bill is. And I also know we're throwing around that phrase omnibus, and it's not a word that I think everybody knows. It essentially just means a package of budget measures and policy changes that, that all address one subject. Um, and before before we get your response here, I do want to go to the phone lines. We have lots of calls. Um, let's start with uh, Roseanne in South Burlington. Roseanne, you're on the air. Go ahead. Uh, hi. Can you hear me okay? I can, yes. And thank you for your patience on the line. Okay. Uh, oh, that's no problem. I, I want to point out something that no one is talking about, and that is the serious unintended consequences of this bill for natural resource lands. There, in the effort to solve the, the short-term housing problem, it may cause some long-term environmental and, um, by association, climate crisis damage. The major flaw is that rather than directing housing based on location, and as Leah said earlier, you know, in, in dense urban areas or city cores rather than on rural lands, 
This bill directs housing based on the presence of municipal water and sewer. So for some cities, and South Burlington is one, that's where I live, this would cause the destruction of hundreds of acres of land that we have zoned as natural resource protection. And the reason it would cause harm is because there's municipal water and sewer that was run into these areas uh, two decades ago. Mm. So it would cause um, the destruction of hundreds of acres of land, uh, wildlife habitats, um, forest areas, just because municipal water and sewer uh, is um, are located in the rural land. And so that's a real concern for South Burlington. Uh, by the way, we've added thousands of houses over the past few years, a thousand of which are permanently affordable. So South Burlington is adding houses. We and and Roseanne, I'm sorry, I just want to check. Are you with the um, you're with the South Burlington Land Trust? Is that right? Yes, I, I'm a member of the board of directors of the South Burlington Land Trust. I'm okay. calling on my own, but the but the board believes this as well. Oh okay. well, I'd love to to hear Senator Rom Hinsdale's response to this. South Burlington, an area you know very well, and there's been a lot <laughs> of debate there about um, about development of of open space. Um, what are your thoughts on what Roseanne's saying here? Yes. You know, I would say I know Roseanne very well. I know South Burlington very well. Um, and it's great to be here with Brian. I served on the board of the Vermont Natural Resources Council. I teach environmental justice policy at Vermont Law School. So, you know, this has been the heart of uh, the heart of the discussion for, you know, for decades at the very least about how you take into account the needs of people of color and the quote unquote urban poor in the environmental movement. Um, and I really value VNRC coming to the table to do this work. Um, no one got more airtime in our committee than South Burlington. And that's probably for good reason. It's really at that crossroads of being part of the largest uh, employment corridor in the state right now. It's where a lot of people are commuting to for jobs at Beta and on Logic. Uh, we're seeing a lot of job growth. And we should stop and point out that right now we have 24,000 open jobs in the state and less than 1,000 housing listings in the state. And most of those are not in Chittenden County and they're not turnkey for a family. Um, going straight to Roseanne's concern about municipal water and sewer, and Brian alluded to this as well, uh, you know, I have sat with the leaders of South Burlington's local government, their planner, their city manager, and essentially said, this is the area where we can either agree or disagree, where you are not developing any housing along your municipal water and sewer because you want to leave it as open space. We're not asking you to develop that. What you can't argue is that low-density residential is somehow better for the environment than getting a few more units per acre. And that's not a rush to develop those units. Um, you know, we're not saying you have to. But someone has the right to develop with a little more density along municipal water and sewer where housing is allowed. And I have gotten, you know, agreement from the leaders in South Burlington. Um, I can't speak to those who still want to disagree with that. But one house per 10 acres is not better for the environment because it's pushing 10 to 25 to 40 people out into other counties where they have to commute in uh, to get to work. And we're trying to avoid that. Well, Brian Shoup with the Vermont Natural Resources Council, I'd love your thoughts here. Well, I'm not as, as knowledgeable about the specifics of South Burlington's land use regulations. I do know that they went through pretty extensive um, updating process recently, and that, that was intended to do a combination of promote housing and, and have inclusionary zoning to promote housing, but also to protect natural areas, wildlife habitat, and connectivity. 
my understanding, and um, I, I hope I'm not wrong, is that the, it is up to the city to designate their sewer and water service areas. And I would agree with the senator that extending sewer to 10-acre lots um, doesn't make environmental sense. It really doesn't make economic sense either. I, I don't know if that's the case, though. And my understanding is that the city would have the ability through its zoning to say what um, what lands, what natural features are off limits for development? Mm. So, um, and there were some environmental safeguards put into the bill, but but I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'll, I'll leave it at that because um, I'm not as familiar with the, the situation in South Burlington. I have before said um, when I probably shouldn't that you know, South Burlington is both uh, has been a model for for smart growth and redevelopment, like around the I-89 intersection, and it's also made some pretty serious, I think, uh, infrastructure mistakes in the past by extending sewer and water in areas that they didn't intend on having um, dense development. Well, let's go back to the phone lines here. We have a call from uh, uh, Carlton in Williston. Carlton, you're on the air. Go ahead. Uh, Good afternoon, and uh, thank you very much for uh, taking my call. Um, I'm an African-American who has moved to Vermont. I moved to Vermont 20 years ago. Um, I left for six years to uh, obtain knowledge in the trucking industry. I've come back in the last two months and have experienced what the pandemic has uh, created in the uh, real estate market as well for, and as far as the rental. Um, I like what you all stated earlier regarding uh, your take. Uh, landlords did not necessarily look for the top dollar uh, for rentals. Um, I, I have no children. I've never been married. And I look for two bedroom, two ba- two bath homes because that's my advantage. Um, I'm just looking as, at this point as well to see if uh, landowners would have the opportunity to possibly sell at a fraction of what they're uh, they're looking for. Uh, small plots um, for people like myself who I make too much money for uh, to get into any type of subsidized housing and I, I make way too little money to get into mm-hmm. the locations that I'm looking to, uh, to, to provide, uh, uh, access to the highway, uh, quickly for myself. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Carlton, for calling in. I know you're not alone there and what you're looking for. Um, Senator Romhinstow, what do you say to the, the concerns of someone like Carlton, who's, uh, like we talked about earlier, trying to get his foot in the door of home ownership? Yeah, I mean, Carlton, I appreciate you moving back to Vermont. I think that's the story of a lot of people, um, you know, who are still in the workforce. They miss Vermont. They want to enjoy uh, everything we love about Vermont as well, and they just want to find that suitable home for themselves. You know, it's a good opportunity to say that even just over the course of the pandemic, we've invested half a billion dollars in trying to subsidize middle income housing. Our Vermont Home Improvement Program, VHIP, has invested in helping small landlords and small property owners uh, get their houses back up to code, make them um, go from blighted to turnkey ready for uh, a first-time home buyer or, you know, somebody who needs access to that exact type of housing that Carlton's talking about. We can't continue to do that while we have regulations uh, at the municipal and state level that continue to get in the way and make that 
ever more costly for someone to make those changes or to get a few more units out of their um, their property. The other thing worth mentioning with the duplexing, also with funding for ADUs, accessory dwelling units, so somebody could have a detached accessory dwelling unit, they could take their existing property and add a 900-square-foot additional property that's either attached or detached from the home. Um, you know, that's another option to help someone get that first one or two bedroom property and uh, be able to build some equity as well. So we're looking at all kinds of housing opportunities and someone to start um, building equity. A lot of our money goes into shared equity homeownership as well. Um, I know Carlton said he's not income eligible, but we've actually tried to raise the income eligibility to 150% of area median income on a lot of these programs, recognizing that with interest rates the way they are, you you know you have to be maybe at eighty to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars of income just to actually afford your first home, and that's unfortunate. But we want to make sure those folks are eligible for help as well. Right, right. That is that is a very real situation you hear about every single day with conversations. Yeah. Um, Brian Shoup, I, I want to make sure we have time to dive into a, a couple of your concerns about this omnibus bill. Um, could you could you tell us a, a little bit about about what you you'd like to flag now that we we have both you and, and Senator Ron Hinsdale on together? Sure, sure. And uh, and Senator Senator and I have spoken about this. Um, so a couple of of things that we are not pleased with in the bill. Um, one, I mentioned these designations that that they Act 250 is treated differently, is exempted in some of them. The bill would take the the most common um, of the designations, the Village Center Program. There's over 200 of them. Um, it's it's a very low bar. It was designed to redevelop the historic core of our villages, and it would and it would um, extend these priority housing projects, exempt them in those areas, and actually raise the cap on them. Um, the number of units would actually eliminate the number of units. So there'd be any number of, of housing units that could be allowed in these village centers, which, which as long as they have some form of zoning, um, not that there's any quality control over the zoning or that it would do anything to um, address the range of issues that Act 250 does. So our concerns are, are a couple with that. One is a priority housing project is, is defined as a potentially mixed-use building or set of buildings. So 60% of this priority housing project could be a large commercial property in these village centers with with limited oversight. And some of the environmental impacts that we're concerned about, I I mentioned the neighborhood development areas. What those are, are are village centers and areas surrounding village centers that have gone through a a more robust designation process. And and one of the things that needs to, uh, to occur in those areas is that they need to have some regulation over River development and river corridors to protect, really, to protect public safety and and health um, in the event of flooding, which we're going to see a lot more of with climate change. Um, the neighborhood development areas uh, was changed last year to do that, but by extending these priority housing projects into village centers, um, without that extra oversight, we're really concerned that that could not only have environmental impacts, um, it could result in unregulated or poorly regulated commercial development, and also potentially put people in harm's way. Um, you know, after Hurricane Irene, we found that that disproportionate number of housing units that were lost were mobile homes because we have historically put, you know, marginalized communities and marginalized land. And I'm afraid that the, the extending the uh, the priority housing projects to village centers without those protections could result in the same thing. Um, another thing that we oppose in the bill is what it would. It, 
effectively say the new limit for development anywhere in the state is 25 housing units. That's whether it's in a village center, in a smart growth location, on the side of a hill, um, in the best agricultural soils and wildlife habitat, whether a community has zoning or not. And we're, we're really adamantly opposed to that. We do recognize that there's a housing crisis. We're also going to see a the results of a climate crisis come to Vermont. We're also in the middle of a global biodiversity crisis. So we don't want to limit our review for large-scale residential developments throughout the state. We want to focus those um, those exemptions or those exceptions to areas that have been through some form of designation process that's intended to make sure that we're not having unintended consequences. Well, we have just a couple minutes left there. So, Senator Ramhinsa, I want to give you a chance to, to respond to, to maybe one of, of Brian's points. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think Brian and I could easily get in the weeds, and I think we're going <laughs> to land in a good place by May when the legislative session ends and it goes through both the Senate and the House, and everyone has their say. Um, I really appreciate the specificity of his concerns. Um, and I just want to, you know, make it clear that uh, Brian talked about a stakeholder group that very delicately put together a lot of municipal reforms. So grateful that we had that uh, as as something to include in the bill. The other two major contributors to this bill um, were the rural caucus and the legislature. It's over 50 members of the legislature who also don't want to be forgotten in terms of their housing needs um, out in our rural communities. They need senior housing. They need workforce housing. Um, and, you know, I think we'll be able to get into the details as the bill moves forward about what that threshold is before you enter Act 250. But these are our smallest developers just trying to build a few units here and a few units there. Um, and the other contributors, the Vermont League of Cities and Towns, you know, they are our municipalities. You see municipal changes uh, to housing going forward right now being voted on in our communities. They get that they need to contribute. They just want Act 250 included. So honestly, the day we got Vermont League of Cities and Towns support for this bill for including a little bit of Act 250, we lost a lot of the environmental groups that just wanted to see this focus on uh, municipal regulation. It's a tough balance, but I do think... Uh, I appreciate that everyone is at the table so that by the time we end our session, we've honored both housing and conservation in a classic Vermont way. And Senator Ram Hinsdale, uh, where where is this bill headed next? What's the process look like? Uh, so right now, the bill is in the Senate Natural Resources Committee. Um, you know, they're not used to sharing jurisdiction on this issue, I will say. You know, they've been a little territorial because we haven't seen a bill like this come out of the Housing Committee for a while. But that's where the bill has to come from. No one else is going to originate a bill like this. Um, and then it goes on to Senate appropriations because there are large additional appropriations, another major landmark investment in getting this housing developed. And I know they're going to want to say, if we're getting the money on the table, let's make sure that the regulations don't cost us you know, 20% of that funding off the bat. Then it goes to the Senate floor and then off to the House for many of the same committees of jurisdiction, uh, hoping that we have a joint conference committee between the House and the Senate before my baby is due on May 10th, I'll just oh, add. Yeah, so A lot to do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations again on thank that news, Senator Ram Hinsdale. <laughs> State Senator Keisha Ram Hinsdale, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me and thanks for a great discussion. And Brian Shoup, the Executive Director of the Vermont Natural Resources Council, thank you for your time as well.
No, thanks for having me as well, and thank uh, Senator Ram Hinsdale for pulling me out of the weeds. <laughs> and and for all of the callers who we didn't get to today and everyone who wrote in on this conversation, thank you so much for participating. I will say that, as we have said time and again, housing is a complex issue. It's an important one, and we are going to continue to return to it on Vermont Edition. You can also find some of our past shows on Vermont's housing crisis on vermontpublic.org. Just search for Vermont Edition. All right, that is all the time that we have for today. Today's show was directed by James Stewart. Our show is produced by Tedra Meyer and Andrea Lorian. Our managing editor is Matthew Smith. Our call screener today was Rick Barrett, and our theme music was composed by Myra Flynn. I'm Michaela Lafrac. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch up again soon.